0: Have you ever played ping pong? One winner, one loser, right? Basketball, same thing. One winner, one loser. Football, one winner, one loser. Baseball, soccer, hockey, same thing. One winner, one loser. How about pinball? Have you played pinball or have you watched someone play pinball? This is a machine and it has these little buttons on the side with the flappers and a ball that's going all around the place and lights flashing everywhere and Uh, like noises and bouncy things and ricochets. Have you you seen uh, pinball? Yes? All right. Maybe you guys are not helping me out very much. Yes, you've seen pinball? Electronic versions and then like mechanical versions. Well, some people can get really, really good at pinball. But no one has ever not lost because you might do really well bouncing that little flapper thing and hitting the ball up and keeping it up there, but eventually, after like some mistake that you make, the ball's going to fall between the flappers and the game's over. Happens every time. But they still lost. In a much more serious matter, the law of God functions similarly if you could, in theory... Keep God's law for 24 hours straight, or two days straight, or two weeks straight, or two years straight, or 20 years straight, keeping the law of God, every single one of them, eventually you would violate one of the laws of God. And then you lose, game over. That's how the law functions. The law doesn't give attaboys. Good job. You've passed the test. The law says, yep, okay, yes, okay, fail. Yep, you got it right. Yep, okay, yes, no. Violation. That's how the law functions. If our relationship with God were only law-based, we would reside in a constant state of fear, condemnation and failure but Paul in the book of Galatians and elsewhere is constantly trying to remind us that our spiritual life did not begin through the law but instead our spiritual life began through the gracious supply of God's work based upon Jesus Christ Jesus work and applied through the spirit of God The Spirit helps us to understand what the significance of Jesus' once-for-all sacrificial death is. Our spiritual life begins when the Spirit reveals to us, unveils our eyes to see that Jesus' work is enough to make us fit for God, accepted in the Beloved, having an eternal destiny that is secure in Him. This is what God does. He makes us alive. And Paul is... Making this argument throughout the book of Galatians. He warns us not to view our standing before God based upon a system of law keeping or works, righteousness. Take a look at Genesis, excuse me, Galatians chapter 3, and look at verses 13 and 14. Paul writes, but of course it's the Spirit of God who inspired this. He says, Christ redeemed us. From the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed or cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit. How? through faith. And so he's calling us, he's telling us that Jesus has removed that punishment, that heavy hand of the law, because Jesus took that heavy hand of the law by hanging on the the cross. And we receive this promise of the Spirit through faith. Look at the end of the chapter, or actually a little further in the chapter, verses 24 and following. We're still in Galatians 3, verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, how? By faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. How? Through faith. And So he's making this argument and he continues on in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. Galatians 4. And verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were, past tense, under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, excuse me, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He's he's trying to convince us because it's hard. It's hardwired into us that we think, in order to have a good relationship with God, I've got to do something that will gain His approval. It's hardwired into us. But God does a a tremendous work, and it's a perpetual work of convincing us that what He has done is He has provided a way for us to be accepted before Him in a permanent status by a perfect sacrifice of a perfect High Priest. His name is Jesus Christ. He's removing from us This bondage to find a way to finally be right with God. Instead, he has declared through Christ, you are right with God. As he comes to the next portion of his argument in the book of Galatians, take a look at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Our brother Dave read this in our scripture reading this morning. It says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of what? Slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision. He is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away or moved away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What a great passage. Paul is convincing us and God is convincing us that what Christ has done has removed that impending doom. The impending doom of violation. The fear. The fear of displeasing. The fear of condemnation. The fear of judgment and death. He's removed that. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Not so that we would continue to be entangled by a yoke of bondage that no one has been able to untangle themselves except for one. Jesus was under that yoke to the law. And yet He Fulfilled it perfectly. And He did that in our place. He mastered the law. And in our justification, that's coming to God through faith in Christ by grace. Justification. God takes the righteous record of Jesus Christ, His mastery, and He places it on our account the record stands written in heaven for each one of us that have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. We are declared to have fulfilled the law. How? Through Christ. It's a wonderful message. It is the message of the gospel. It is for unbelievers to come unto God, realizing that they don't have enough, but He does. And it is a message for believers who have come to God to recognize that we don't stay in God's good graces now by obedience to the law. We stay in God's good graces because of what Christ has done. It is a settled reality. It's an incredible thing and it's so anti-our bent naturally. The first concept that we want to discuss this morning in this uh, passage is stand firm in the freedom provided by Jesus Christ. Stand firm. This is a call to action. It's a call to action. This is a command. I find this to be remarkable. It's one of the many tensions that you find in Scripture. God gives you a law To rest in grace. And I'm like, all right, so I've got to do something right here to not do something. I need to learn to stand firm on what's been done for me and not to move, to graduate beyond, to move away from, to improve upon what Christ has done. Because it's our natural bent to get an attaboy. But all the attaboys we need belong to Christ. Well done, my good and faithful servant. This is my beloved Son in whom I am what? well pleased. Stand firm. Don't move away from this. So Let's look at this passage. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now the literal wording to this is very interesting. I'm just going to read you the Greek word order. I'm not going to bore you with the Greek words themselves. It, is, it says this, the freedom us, Christ has set us free. So you could read it like this. The freedom for us, or the, the our freedom the freedom that has been worked for us, Christ has set us free. The reason that Christ has set us free is that we might enjoy this freedom He has granted to us. Isn't it interesting that He has to tell us to do this? Like you would think that everyone freed would want to rejoice in that freedom and never be entangled again. But He has to tell us and tell us and tell us again. It is for freedom, this freedom, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's a completed action. He has already set us free. Now we are to enjoy and rest in that freedom. What has He freed us from? There's going to be a listing on the screen for you just to think about what God has freed us from. First of all, He has freed us from the law of sin and death. You'll find that in Romans chapter 8. The law and violation of the law brings forth death. But God has freed us from that because Jesus has fulfilled the law in our our stead. He set us free from sin in Romans chapter 6 and verse 18. So we're no longer slaves to sin, it's no longer our master. It doesn't get a chance to say, You must, you must obey me. The freedom that we've received in Christ has, has rescued us from that bondage to the must. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. Fear what? Condemnation. Where God's going to say, No, you don't make it. You don't, you don't make the cut. You're not acceptable in my sight. I don't want you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. This will never be heard by someone that has embraced Christ as their Savior. He's removed the fear of that. It's a wonderful confidence he's given to us. Amen. In similar vein, Romans 8:1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. no condemnation. Similarly in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15, God's word says this, He has released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. You could summarize this by saying that God has freed us from bondage of performance. The bondage to perform. Because Jesus has performed perfectly in our place. It's an amazing thing. It's so contrary to religion. Where we have to do enough and give enough and be enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He's removed this bondage of trying to find a way to be pleasing to God because God has told us in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been accepted in the Beloved because of His blood. It's amazing. Not only have we been freed from some things, we've also been freed to something. And this passage makes that evident. We're free to enjoy God. We are free to understand God's boundless love. And this passage emphasizes this third part. We are freed to become a vessel or a channel of God's life-changing, Spirit-provided love. Take a look again at, at verse 6. It says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through what? Love. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And he tells us the pathway. But, if, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a lot in this passage, but he's telling us that not only have we been freed from all these bondages, he's freed us to be able to love by God's Spirit in a way that changes people's lives. The way that God has changed our life when we show them and show them and communicate to them the love of God in Christ. Paul charges us to stand in that freedom. Take a look at Colossians chapter 1. Stand in this freedom, this freedom of having the, the bondage of fear removed, the bondage to the law removed. He's opened up new pathways for us, pathways that are life-giving and life-changing. In Colossians 1, he's going to give us a similar concept telling us not to, to wander away or move past the Gospel. Look at verses 21-23. through 23. He says, "...and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death..." "...in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Not shifting, in the middle of verse 23, not shifting from the hope of the Gospel. You could translate not shifting to not being set in motion away. In other words, stand. Stand here. Remain in the faith here. Faith in you? No. Faith in the church? No. Faith in your obedience? No. Faith in what God has done through Jesus Christ. It's faith in the Gospel. He says don't move away from that. Don't think that you get to a point in your life, oh, I've been been saved for 17 years now, and now I see a better way. A different way. No, it's the same way. Faith in Christ. He brings you to the Father, and He keeps you in the Father, and He's going to glorify you in Himself. This is a a, a wonderful truth, and it's repeatedly we're warned against thinking that there's a way to improve upon it. Stand here. Don't move ahead. He then goes on back in Galatians 5. We're not going to turn back there because we read the passage a couple of times already. Not to submit again to a yoke of bondage. So stand here. Stand in the Gospel. Stand in this freedom. It's for freedom that Christ set us free. And don't be submitting again to a yoke of bondage. Take a look at Acts chapter 15. So as you're turning there, I just want you to think for a moment. Since the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation, it's the power of God to save us from our sin, for everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord, what do you suppose Satan's attitude toward the Gospel is? If if the Gospel will rescue me from my sin in His kingdom and place me into God's kingdom and give me righteousness. Righteousness. Satan's attitude toward the Gospel is one of enmity, hatred. He hates the Gospel message. You know what's interesting? You only have to just distort it a little bit. Distort it a little bit and you get something different than the Gospel. Which is why at the beginning of Galatians, Paul made it very obvious. He said, listen, if you hear a Gospel message, even if it comes from an angel in heaven... If that Gospel is different than the Gospel that we've delivered to you, reject it. Reject it. And may God bring judgment on the One who brings that distorted Gospel. Because the Gospel, which is we're sinners, Jesus became sin for us, even though we knew know sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God through Him. Right, so the gospel is Jesus providing us eternal life in exchange for our sinfulness. If, if someone distorts that simple message and makes it something that I add to and requires something from me, then Satan's distortion short circuits. God's life-giving gospel. Does that make sense? So he's adamant. Paul is adamant. And God is adamant that people not distort the gospel message. And so there's this reminder. And there are illustrations from believers and unbelievers of trying to distort it. And Acts chapter 15 is one of those illustrations. Take a look at verses 1 and 2 of Acts 15. He said, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Look down at verses 5 and 6. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order that, the, uh, that they keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved. How? through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So he's, you can see right in the beginning of the church, after the resurrection of Christ, and the giving of the Spirit, and the establishment of these local churches, that there's, there's this rise up against the sim- simplicity of the Gospel, which is God for you, Jesus providing for you, God being merciful and gracious to you through Christ to doing this. You must be circumcised. So you can see that right at the beginning of the church that there was this conflict. And it it reads in competition with the words of Jesus. These words I think will be familiar to you. They'll be on the screen. In Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, "Come to me, All who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke. Not a yoke of slavery. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The offering of Jesus is come. Come to me. I've already done the work. You get to to be a recipient of the work that I have accomplished. He said it is finished. Not, I did my part, now you do yours. It is finished. He's accomplished the work. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm in this freedom And do not allow a yoke of slavery to come back on you. There's this constant draw for us. You can tell. You can tell when a person feels under pressure, and you can tell when someone is at ease. Let me ask you a question. Answer this for yourself Do you, in your relationship with God, feel stress or joy? Do you in your relationship with God feel stress or joy? If you feel stress, it's because there's too much of you involved. Jesus has offered you rest and joy and peace. Or, you can just use, you can use the Galatians 5.22 passage, love Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance or self-control. This is what God offers you in Himself. Rest. Are you striving inside of you? Will Will I make it? Will I please God? The reason that you feel that way is you're focused in this way. When you look That way, at Christ, you say, look, look at what God has done for me. Look at what God provides for me. It is in this freedom that God has called us to stand. Christ has freed you in order to give you freedom in your relationship with God. Freedom to enjoy Him. There's the the old catechism that says, what is the chief end of man? the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Not just to enjoy Him someday in the future, but to enjoy Him forever. That means I can enjoy Him today. I had the privilege of teaching a Bible study on the base this morning. We were looking at Hebrews chapter 4, talking about Jesus, the great high priest. He's passed through the heavens. He's Uh, was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. He feels for us in our uh, weaknesses or our sinfulness so that we can therefore come to Him, draw near to Him with confidence or boldness that we might experience mercy and find grace to help in time of need in that passage, God is letting us know that what Jesus does as our high priest, He's already made the offering. He always lives to make intercession of us that for us. That's implied by that. And He says, come and lay it all out before Me. What you'll find when you come to Me is mercy. And what you'll find when you come to Me is grace to help in the deepest, hardest parts of life. In the He'll, he'll give you help in just the right time is the concept. It's an amazing reality that God is offering up for us to come to him. Has Christ set you free? Do you have a freedom? You know, you know that you are standing right before God. Not because you went to church today, not because you put some money in an offering basket today, not because you helped your neighbor yesterday. You stand right before God because you know who Christ is and He knows who you are. Freedom. Head back to Galatians chapter 5, please. Stand firm in the freedom provided by Jesus Christ. As we move a little further in Galatians 5, we want to notice some warnings. Understand the dangers of working for righteousness. Understand the dangers of working for righteousness. Look at verses 2 through 4, and we'll work our way through these. Verse 2, look, that is an, exclam- an exclamatory statement. Whoa, hold up! And whenever I think of an exc- exclamation for some reason, because I'm kind of a child in my brain, I think of a, um, <laughs> it's called the Incredibles as the, the, the movie Incredibles, it's a little cartoon thing, comes to an end. Everything's fine. The, you know, the, the, the hero's won. And then some new character arises up from under the ground and this machine comes out of the ground and it says, Behold! The Underminer! And uh, behold! Can, can, get, look over this way! Pay attention! He's trying to grab our attention. He says, Stand firm. You've been set free for freedom. Look, pay attention. There's something you need to know. I, Paul, say to you if you accept circumcision, try reading these words without being confused. Christ will be of no advantage to you. That sentence, if you take it out of its context, is super confusing. Christ will be of no advantage to you. This doesn't make any sense. In its context, it does. Because the option, option A, Christ. Option B is Christ plus you. Christ plus you, no advantage. The Gospel strips us (laughs) of our own self-righteousness. Because as soon as we're in the mix, that's where the mess is. If you choose circumstance, uh, circumcision, Christ is of no advantage of you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated, obligated to keep the whole law. Oh boy, verse 4 gets even, even more intense. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Whew! This is is pretty intense, wouldn't you say? If you're being honest with what's being said here, no advantage. Obligated to keep the whole law. And then in verse 4, severed from Christ. Falling away from grace. This is really uh, serious dangers that are being warned. What is he warning us? First of all, the first warning he gives us is that Christ will be of no advantage to you. You see that in verse 2. If we accept circumcision. Now, circumcision, he says in verse 6, circumcision, uncircumcision, they don't really count for anything. Are those contradictory statements? If you just, like, if you're focusing in on contradiction, yes, those are con- contradictory statements, right? But in the flow of his argument, they're not. Contradicting what he's telling you is circumcision is you thinking you can do something to please God. Circumcision is kind of like idols. Those little idols of the Old Testament, they're not real. They don't have mouths, they don't have eyes, they don't have noses, they don't have hands, they can't do, say, smell, hear anything. An idol is nothing, that's what he tells us. So he's kind of doing the same thing with circumcision. If you think circumcision is going to save you, Christ is of no advantage to you. If you're circumcised, it doesn't keep you from being in Christ. Nor does uncircumcision keep you from being in Christ. Circumcision, uncircumcision, eh, it's not really the point. But in verse 2, he's saying circumcision is capturing something bigger than just having a piece of your flesh taken off. Circumcision is capturing self-made religion or a way that I can gain access and pleasure from God toward me. So it's capturing a bigger concept. Does that make sense? we clear? Okay. Circumcision is just an illustration of a larger issue. If you think that you can perform something that will bring you into God's favor, you're missing the gospel message. Christ has done it all. It's a quote from Tim Keller. He said... Paul wants the Galatians to remember that you can't add to Christ without subtracting Christ. He is either all their value or he is without value. How serious is this warning of Christ not being an advantage to us? Well, he he ups the ante in verse 4. He says, you are severed from Christ. If, if, you, if you're going to try to gain merit before God, you're circumventing what Jesus has done on your behalf. You're cutting it off, severed from Christ. That's why it's to no advantage of you, uh, for you. And Jesus himself said that you have to have me. You have to have me. He said it in different words. It's in John 15, verses 4 and 5. It's on the screen for you. It says, Abide in me. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do what? Nothing. So he has to be our all. He has to be our all. And if you think that doing something religiously, spiritually is going to gain you approval from God... You're saying, I'm choosing my way rather than resting in Christ's way. This is another way of saying, stand firm in the gospel. Are we seeing it? It's what Galatians 5 is about. A second warning arises in, in verse 3. You are obligated to be perfect. He says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You're obligated to be perfect. If you choose, the circumcision root or the self-made religion root or the, the, the works righteousness root. If you say, I'm going to please God like Cain chose. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to you know, work the field and I'm going to offer him this beautiful basket of fruit and God will be happy with me. He said, alright, well, you're going to have to do that flawlessly every day from now until your life is over. This is what James says about this, James chapter 2 and verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The whole thing. Jesus in Matthew 5, I skipped over it because we're just running out of time. Jesus in Matthew 5 is expanding on the law. And in that he says, Oh, y'all you, you think you're okay because you haven't murdered anyone. My assumption is, and I'm, I think I'm right, none of you have killed anyone. So you feel really comfortable when it says do not murder. But what Jesus does is He takes that command and He says, yeah, but if you're, if you're not very happy with someone else, you hate them in your heart, You've killed them. So, you know that person that cut you off on the road on Tuesday? And you got really upset, banging your horn, doing whatever else you might have done. Very upset, whether you kept it all inside or you brought it outside. That is a demonstration of the hatred of your heart. This is murder. You can't get away from it that easily. He expands on the law time and time again in that section in Matthew chapter 5, and he does it in other ways uh, when he talks about loving your neighbor with the the rich young ruler. We don't have time to dive into all of it. The concept here in Galatians 5 is saying this If you think you can please God with your actions, you are going to have to do it flawlessly forever. Who's ready to stand before uh, the Lord with that methodology? Ready? Who's first? Let the record show there was nobody. (laughs) Right, because all of us know that there are flaws or sinfulness within us. And so if I'm going to stand before my judge based upon my own righteousness, I'm going to come up severely lacking. And the yoke of bondage and the fear of condemnation would be warranted. The only way the fear of condemnation... Is removed is when we stand solely on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ and the declaration of righteousness that comes when we trust Him as our Savior. This sets us free. It sets us free from fear because we're not relying on us, we're relying on Him. Those are the first two warnings. The third warning that He gives us you have chosen a pathway contrary to and absent of grace. Look at verse 4 again. So many people have utilized this passage to talk about people losing their salvation. I want for us to try to understand it in just a couple of moments in the context of what we've just said. I want for us to to try to understand it in a way that makes it clear that he's not saying you can enter into grace and be saved and then step outside of grace and lose it. You have chosen a pathway contrary to and absent of grace. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be what? What does it say? Justified by the law. You want to be declared righteous by the law. You have fallen away from grace. You have moved away from grace. You have chosen a different pathway from grace. Picture it this way, just for an illustration purpose. You've got two ropes here. You've got your law rope in your off hand. Your weak hand. And you've got the grace of Jesus Christ in your strong hand. And you've got to get up there in order to know you're safe. The ropes are attached to the edges of the building. So you start climbing. Well, you get to a certain point with these ropes. You can only get so far. You have a math problem. right? I can't get on the roof with... Ropes in pulling in different directions. So here I am halfway up. I'm just kind of suspended here because it doesn't work. This is as far as you can get, which is not working. So this scenario is severing the Christ rope, the grace rope. And so now you're left over here with one rope in your weak hand, except that's not a strong enough illustration yet. We have to amend the illustration to be accurate. And here's the amended illustration. On this side, clinging to the works rope, you have no arms and no hands. Where are you going to go? Boom! Right to the bottom. On the other hand, you let go of that one and cling on to this one. It's This is not, okay, now pull yourself up. There's a way better thing that happens here. <laughs> it's like, It's like a bucket truck comes from underneath you and lifts you on up and brings you to the destination. Because grace is not God's great goodness toward us plus our fantastic all-we-can-offer part. Grace is God's favor based upon our absolute unworthiness. It's incredible. So how do you want to be justified before God? Through your efforts, through the law, you'll find yourself on the ground, severed, separated, apart, apart from grace, apart from Christ. You choose your way, it ends separate from Christ. On the other hand, Christ has set us free that we might have freedom, freedom found in Him grace that lasts forever, grace that lifts us up and brings us to our final destination. This is the grace that is offered to us. And he's told us about this earlier in the book of Galatians. Take a look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Look at verses 20 and 21. Would you mind reading this with me? I know we probably have some different translations, so it might be a little dissonant out there, but it's all right. We're going to work it through. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Ready? To bring me into a relationship with God, and it's about Christ in the midst of that relationship. My life that I live now, I live through faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Back in chapter 5, He's warning us in verses 2 through 4, choosing a different way that's different than standing firm, standing firm in Christ. He's telling us what it would mean to take on a yoke of bondage. It's perilous. And so he concludes in verses 5 and 6 by telling us this. Stand in faith, confident of Christ's righteousness. Stand in faith, confident of Christ's righteousness. We're going to read verses 5 and 6 in just a moment. But I want to give you a little thought as we enter into reading it. I want you to listen carefully to what Paul writes. He uses a part of speech known as the dative of means. Ha ha, technical words for you. Dative of means. What it means is, what the concept is, this is the pathway to accomplishing this. And the pathway to accomplishing this, he makes self-evident. Look at verse 5. Chapter 5. In verse 5, he says, "...for through the Spirit..." There's your dative of means. "...the Spirit." "...through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Those who seek righteousness by their own effort have departed from from grace, but believers by the power of the Spirit that is enjoyed by faith seek a righteousness from God." It's a very interesting terminology he uses. We eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. We eagerly anticipate the confident assurance of righteousness. Those who have come to the place of knowing who Jesus is, what he has done, and what He provides, confidently wait for the fulfillment, full demonstration of the righteousness that God Himself demonstrates. We eagerly await the hope of righteousness. The question I have for you is, where does that righteousness come from? And we've been talking about it all morning, so this is not... News to you, but look uh, on the screen at First Thessalonians three thirteen. He says, "So he, meaning God, may establish your hearts." What does it say? Blameless in holiness. Who is establishing our hearts? Blameless in holiness. God is. In Revelation chapter seven, he says this. John says this. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every Nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And what does it say? They were clothed in white robes. Clothed. Someone clothed them in white robes. Uh, Revelation 19 in verse 14. The armies of heaven were arrayed in fine linen, white and pure. This is a confident expectation. There's a coming day when we will be dressed in perfect righteousness. We await a day when that righteousness comes. So I want, with that in the, your mind, I want you to think about this statement that Tim Keller makes. It's, it's kind of the, the, um, the application of this concept of standing firm in the righteousness we've received that sets us free. Listen to these words. By referring to the future, Paul turns our imaginations to what it will mean to be radiant. Glorious, beautiful, and perfect. We know that this is guaranteed, and therefore, it is essentially true now. We are to live today knowing we are and always will be an absolute beauty in the eyes of God. Put another way, we are as loved and honored by God now as we will be when we are perfectly radiant in heaven. This concept does come forth from this text. He tells us that we've been set free and not to submit to to slavery. He warns us in verses 2, 3, and 4 of what the ramifications are to think that we can be justified another way. In verse 5, he tells us it's through the Spirit that we have faith that results in this Confidence, the confidence that we wait for a hope, a confidence of righteousness. And as a result of that, God tells us in verse 6, it's not about external standards. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision that count for anything. It's only faith working through love. We become vessels of that love that God has for us. He's going to develop that theme of loving one another later on in the chapter. But He's letting us know that we've been set free and in that freedom, God wants to work His love in us and He wants to work His love through us. It comes by His Spirit who is ready. Ready to put that love on display both in us and through us. God has freed us. He tells us, stand in what I've given you. And as a result of that freedom, We can look at one another the way that God looks at us. With love and mercy and patience and grace. We need that so desperately. But when we are in turmoil, trying to find our way and claw our way toward a a place of peace and safety before the Lord, it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder to look with um, compassion and mercy on one another. But God's Spirit produces mercy in us because we know how much Mercy, mercy that we have received. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, as we think about these concepts, you know exactly what each one of us needs from this text. I don't know what each person needs other than to cling to Christ and to be confident in Christ. Father, I pray as as we conclude our worship in the Word and we sing our last song that You would help each one here to think about You and to think about their standing before You. And I pray, Father, for those of us that have trusted Christ, You would press down deeply our confidence in You and our freedom and joy in You. And I pray, Father, if there are any among us that have not come to the place of trusting Christ as Savior, I pray that you would press in a different way. Show them, show them their need. And show them your provision. And help them to abandon their self-effort to gain your pleasure but instead to look to Jesus who has already made the way for your pleasure possible. And I pray, Father, if anyone is among us that has not called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that even in these closing moments, they would recognize they can call out to you and ask you to save them and to give them life. And you will do this abundantly. We commit ourselves We commit our friends to you that you would accomplish your great work and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.